The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. Like many of you, the Art Newspaper team is now working from home for the foreseeable future due to the coronavirus crisis, but we'll continue to produce this weekly podcast. And this week, the theme is the COVID-19 outbreak, and specifically its effect on our journalists. We'll talk to members of the Art Newspaper family in the two epicentres of the virus thus far, Lisa Movius in China and Anna Summers-Cox in Italy. We'll also begin a new series looking in depth at works of art that are currently in museums and galleries that have been forced to close. This week with the art historian and broadcaster Bendor Grosvenor. Before we begin, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and you'll find the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Now, the founder of the art newspaper, Anna Summers-Cox, is currently under lockdown in Turin, Italy. On the 9th of March, the Italian Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, imposed a national quarantine, requiring citizens to go out only when strictly necessary, that is, for work, health-related reasons or grocery shopping. As I record this, nearly 3,000 people have died in Italy from COVID-19, a figure rapidly approaching the number of deaths in China. On Wednesday the 18th of March, it was announced that 475 people had died in a single day. Anna joins me from Turin on the line now. Anna, I'd just like to begin by asking you how you are. Uh, extremely well. And so is everybody I know, except for my step-grandson, who probably has coronavirus, which I'm happy to be able to tell you in his case is um, a cough and a bit of a temperature. And he's just riding it out at home and his doctor says not to worry. But it is a case of bring out your bodies in Lombardy, which is the neighbouring region. Um, and... Um, the, the 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 death toll there is now very high. It's um, over two thousand, and um, for the whole of Italy, but particularly in Lombardy, and people can't even say goodbye to their family when their family members when they die. So what the hearses do is they do a very slow drive past of um, the relations' windows so that they can stand on the balcony and, as it were, wave goodbye. And that's that's it. Uh, it's very strange times because it's sort of like an enforced holiday, an unexpected holiday combined with a horror movie that's sort of lurking in the background. Can you explain to listeners why you're in Turin? Because they may not know your connection there. Ah, right. Well, uh, many years ago, I started the art newspaper for a Turinese publisher called Umberto Alemandi, whom I subsequently married. And um, I decided to stay in Turin and keep him company um, during this um, rather dramatic time and then got um, stuck by the total lockdown. You can't get in or out. Can you, yes, and can you give us a few more details about the lockdown then and, and how quickly was it enforced and all that side of things? Uh, it, well, it was already in, in Lombardy, um, which is called Red Zone, uh, a week before it started here. By the 9th of March, it had been imposed. And at first it was just, you know, um, stay inside. But and then and then they then they just shut down everything. So so offices and factories are still working. But on the whole, people are encouraged to work remotely. Obviously, the, the factory workers have to go into the factories. Uh, you can't drive more than two in a car. Um, the person has the second person has to sit in the back of the car. So they can't. They are, um, we have to keep a meter between ourselves. So the, the, the floor in the supermarket has duct tape stuck at meter interval so we stand well away from each other uh, the only shops that are open are food shops tobacconists news agents and chemists 
and the police can challenge you at any time to make sure that you're not just out sort of um, about to go to a party or anything like that. And actually, the Italians are being very law abiding, particularly in the north, where a lot of people have been ill or are still ill. And whereas in the south, they're having a bit more of a problem because, you know, they, ha- they haven't come up across it in the same way. Right. Can, can you give us a bit more flavour of what it's like to be on the streets of Turin and a deserted Turin? Well, you know what De Chirico um, um, cityscapes look like? Yeah. That's what it looks like. I mean, De Chirico was painting Turin when he did those, those you know, those extended piazzas with the arcaded, arcaded buildings. That's mm. exactly what it looks like. It's shadows. Um, it's, or it feels also like a three o'clock in the afternoon in August when everybody's asleep. Uh, and, and then you get the same feeling of nobody there. But um, uh, I went into, I went into the, the, only, the only buildings that are open, public buildings that are open now, are the churches, although there are not, they're no liturgies being celebrated, which must be the first time there haven't been masses celebrated in the Italian peninsula since, you know, early Christian days. Right. Uh, we're not allowed to congregate. But I went into our neighbouring church this morning. It was absolutely beautiful. There wasn't one single soul in there. Just perfect. And so you're you're taking solace where you can in the fact that you can that you can at least experience culture in in terms of the architecture of the city and as you say in the churches. Yes, yes, uh, but but you're not allowed just to wander about for the sake of it. I, ha- I have to carry a little document saying that I've gone out for the reasons of of my health in case a policeman says, why are you out and about? <laughs> Which is an invitation to perjury, of course. But, but, but you know, it's a slight deterrent from, 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 from being frivolous and just going off to have a drink with somebody, which people really are trying not to do. There's a very strong sense that e- any one of us could communicate a deadly disease to somebody else or somebody else could communicate it to us. Now, tell me about, um, we have a sister paper in Italy, Il Giornale dell'Arte, uh, which, of course, was the very first of these kind of newspapers. And, and, and you know, can you say, say something about, about their operations now? And, you know, are they still active and reporting as we are? Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a skeleton staff in the office uh, with people sitting a very long way from each other. And everybody washes their hands the whole time. Nobody touches each other in any way. Uh, we, we, well, what's like you know is about how long the virus survives on tabletops, that sort of thing. But that can drive you crazy. Everybody else is working from home, um, just as the art newspaper is doing. Seems to work pretty well. In fact, um, we, I rather suspect there might be a, a, a clamour for it, for more of it later on, because it's quite <laughs> enjoyable. It's quite enjoyable working from home if you can get your act together. Can you say something about about the sort of response of the art world in Italy? Um, um, obviously, you know, in various places, especially in the UK and in the US now, there are lots of museums who are very actively talking to their audiences in terms of on social media, etc. Is it the same in Italy? Oh, honestly, Italy is so backward, digitally speaking. You know, they suddenly all said that we, we are now open to the public. Well, you know, I went to the Castello di Rivoli site and... Uh, I couldn't actually get the YouTube things to open. Um, you know, basically they've just got a, an ordinary, perfectly ordinary, nice website. Uh, uh, outstandingly good is the Museo Egizio's one, whose um, rather handsome director, Christian Greco, immediately put a little video online of him, um, first of all, telling everybody to stay at home. That's the great refrain, stay at home. Io resto a casa. Uh, but he's, point, he's talking about 
exchange of letters between two ancient Egyptians, a father and son. And the father is complaining to his son that he hasn't, his son hasn't written to him for a long time. And the extraordinarily the answer uh, survived and it's the son saying i have written to you dad but the servant hasn't put the letters in the post as it were hum hum <laughs> <laughs> i think i have full marks for kind of empathy you know relevance and all the rest of it so that's very good uh the, the um, fondazione prada has quite a good collaboration with uh, google art um the um Uffizi has an excellent website um, and I looked at an, uh, uh, an exhibition they had on on um, um, Africans in their uh, paintings of Africans in their collection, the Raphael exhibition. Now that's a huge tragedy. I mean, this gathering together of the great Raphaels. It's the beginning, the big event of Raphael year. This is 500, 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael. There it all is in Rome. Opened on the fifth of fifth of March um, by the by the president of Italy. Shut on the eighth of March, and shuts permanently on the 2nd of June, by which time we may or may not catch a few weeks of it. And that's got nothing online at all. Right. I mean, that, I mean, as you say, that is the sort of most notable tragedy of, I mean, of course, it's a tragedy that all these museums everywhere are closing, but but that, that event, a real one of, one of those um, rare events that actually genuinely is a once in a lifetime uh, experience. Is there any sense in which that you get that it may be extended or it may uh, be given another chance to exist in the form that, that it that it that it did just before it closed i honestly don't know i'd have thought it'd be pretty difficult to do because there's some very very valuable loans from all around the world i mean the hard thing is to coordinate something where um stuff has come from major museums where you know their raphael is one of their star objects uh the Ulis exhibition um, the collection of Uli Sieg's um, Chinese art um, at the Castello di Rivoli also shut. Um, in fact, it didn't even open. Um, uh, but I, that's easier to extend because it's one man's collection. And I, you know, if he's feeling benevolent, he can let it stay there longer. No, it's going to be a great loss all around. The people who are the real, real losers are the tour guides. There are 20,000 official tour guides in Italy who have nobody to, um, to guide around. And they're all self-employed. So they are literally without an income and they're asking government to help out. And um, tourism, you know, tourism represents 13% of Italy's GDP. And these are not peak tourist months, obviously. But, you know, the photographs of Venice with absolutely nobody in them, you know, are deeply moving. They also reveal how few inhabitants there are in Venice now. Um, but um, but the the economy is 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 cruel, particularly to the to the you know the occasional labour. You know, the bars and the and the cafes are all shut, so the people who are taken on to to wait at table are just. Uh, you know, usually paid in what's called black money, you know, uh, unofficially. Um, yeah. They're just suddenly, suddenly without work. Uh, there are yeah, a lot yeah. of people who are, who are really hurting at the moment. Indeed, and, that, and actually that is something that um, that I think the art newspaper it, it, throughout its history has done very well is point to the kind of ecosystems that underline the art world, that, that keep the art world going. And I think that's one of the things that, um, yes, we're terribly sad about museums closing, but but the livelihoods of so many people across the art worlds are under threat right now. Well, yes, I mean, the art world, I suppose there are artists whose exhibitions aren't happening and small smaller galleries that will, will go under. There's going to be a massive... Um, financial crash, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, what um, a very rich old man once explained to me, who had lived through the big crash of the late twenties, he said, 
you know, it's not that the rich people become poor in a huge financial crash. It's that they wait for the market to bottom out, which means that they don't spend any money. So um, the art world dries up if people aren't buying and selling. Um, now, a, a sort of side uh, aspect of all this, you've talked about the deserted streets of, of Turin, but one of the things which has delighted people a little on, on social media over the last couple of days has been images of Venice. Um, you're a former chair of the Venice in Peril Fund, and therefore you have a very close relationship to that city. Have you been monitoring all of this and seeing these apparently clear canals and and what do you make of it and do you do you know any of the science underlying it uh well i do because uh we collaborated with cambridge university and the institutions in venice at the time and i know um you know what people are working on so i rang up somebody yesterday and i said well you know is this actually true that it's due to um uh, the coronavirus uh, shutdown and they said, well, not really. I mean, it's more that um, the um, 250 water taxis who normally uh, roar up and down the canals in Venice are not doing that. Uh, the Venetians are much too canny to take them. They cost 80 euros to go from A to, you know, just around the block, as it were. Yeah. And that means that the silt isn't being um, being being um, churned up. Uh, so that, that, you could say, is due indirectly to coronavirus. Um, but the main reason why the why the why the water is clear is that these is the light is already very bright, but it's still winter, and so the tiny algae, which the warmer weather um, uh, caused to develop and sus suspended in the water, haven't yet developed. Uh, and that those the, are the algae that give the water in Venice its kind of wonderful green, opaque green, celadon green look. Uh, just has a, that's completely seasonal. It's got nothing to do with coronavirus. Uh, it's not that Corona, you know, that the, the water in Venice is polluted. It's not not particularly polluted, actually. So to return to the to the horrific um, issue itself, Anna, the, at the moment in the UK, there are lots of discussions about waves of the virus. You're in Italy. You're right in the heart of the what appears to be the absolute worst of a wave. It is are you in Italy? Are they saying that it might come back again, or is it, or is it everything to do with firefighting and dealing with the the horror of the current moment? I honestly don't understand what it at all because it seems to me that if we get to the third of April, there could be people who are still about to get it. We all go out on the third of April and start hugging each other again and 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 drinking in bars, and then the people who are gestating it get it, and then they infect. And then it all starts again. I, I think I think you better better not paying attention to what I'm saying because I really don't know what I'm talking about. But I get the feeling that most people don't really quite understand, except possibly some very sophistic, sophisticated virologists, and they don't seem to agree among themselves. Now, one of the things that's delighted people and amazed people, given what's going on, is has been seeing these spontaneous cultural events happening between between the flats. Have you experienced any of that, Anna? Oh, God, yes. I, I, I was out on one of my semi-illicit walks and I came around the corner and in the square, on one side, there was a saxophonist and on the other, there was a trumpeter and they were in dialogue with each other playing a Billie Holiday song. It was absolutely, uh, it was it, it, it made one want to cry, but at the same time, it made one shout with joy because uh, they had absolutely determined that they were going to, to, to communicate um, and, and in a physical way, not just online. 
and people have been doing it all over the country. It was originally arranged as a kind of flash mob, but they keep doing it. You know, people go out and they they start singing, and occasionally they go out and they 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 put a loudspeaker up and play the Italian national anthem very very loudly. And on Sunday, the Archbishop of Turin said all the churches were to ring their bells very loudly for a quarter of an hour, just to break the silence and make us feel joined up as a community. So there are, I mean, you know, despite everything, there are hints that people are finding a connection to community that they perhaps haven't had for some time. Well, that's what what people are saying. There's a, a nice little joke going around of, um, you know, a man saying rather pensively, well, I'm spending a lot of time with my family. Do you know they're quite nice people? <laughs> We're all discovering each other in new ways. Well, Anna, I hope you stay well. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Ben. A bit later, we'll be hearing from Lisa Movius in Shanghai. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website. The coronavirus inevitably continues to dominate the art newspaper's reporting. This week, it was announced that the Freeze New York Art Fair has been cancelled. Meanwhile, museums and galleries across the UK slowly announced their closures. The last of the National Museums in London to shut its doors was the National Gallery, whose long-planned Artemisia Gentileschi exhibition, due to open in April, was also postponed indefinitely. The National says it will go ahead at some point in the future. Meanwhile, the Art Basel Hong Kong Fair opened, at least online, and you can read a moment-by-moment account of the VIP viewing room's experience by our art market editor Anna Brady at theartnewspaper.com. Beyond the coronavirus crisis, three paintings, including a major work by Anthony van Dyck, were stolen from a University of Oxford gallery last weekend. Works by Salvatore Rosa and Annabali Caracci were stolen alongside van Dyck's A Soldier on Horseback from Christchurch Picture Gallery on the 14th of March. You can read all these stories and find a wealth of recommendations for virtual art exhibitions, other art podcasts and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back with Bendor Grosvenor after this. The Bright Young Things. The phrase conjures up a world of glamour, freedom and that glorious feeling of having the world at your feet. And nothing defines their brittle, fleeting enchantment better than the work of Cecil Beaton. One of the 20th century's most admired photographers and very much a bright young thing himself, Beaton captured the sense of youthful abandon and conscious self-fashioning that erupted in the aftermath of the First World War. His images of the young, intelligent and beautiful society darlings whom he called friends were not just limited to photographs. Now, a selection of 22 illustrations by Beaton for his first book, The Book of Beauty, will be offered at Bonham's Modern British and Irish Art Sale this month in London. Bonham specialist in modern British and Irish art, Janet Hardy, commented, Having spent his youth idolising the women he saw in popular magazines, the Book of Beauty was Beaton's realisation of his boyhood scrapbooks, containing photographs, drawings and witty descriptions of some of the most beautiful women of the era, all of whom Beaton admired as much for their talents as their beauty. For more on this story, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, one of the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic is that works of art normally seen and enjoyed by millions of visitors in museums across the world are suddenly hanging unseen in empty galleries. We felt that this was a good moment to place the spotlight on these now lonely works and return them to the public's gaze. And every week until the museums reopen, we'll be joined by leading artists, curators and art historians who'll choose a favourite artwork and share their passion and insight with us. 
For the first in this new series, we asked the art historian and broadcaster Bendel Grosvenor to choose his lonely work, and he's chosen Anthony Van Dyck's masterpiece Martin Rickart from about 1631, which hangs in the Prado Museum in Madrid, which closed indefinitely last week. Bendor joins me on the line to discuss this great work now. Bendor, the inspiration for this series actually came from me thinking about Las Meninas in the Prado and thinking of all those figures looking out at empty galleries. You've actually chosen another work in the Prado. Why did you choose this work? Uh, It's for a long time been uh, my favourite painting. And I remember standing in front of it for the first time and I mean, as an art historian, I suppose you're often knocked out by pictures, but you can often also get a little bit picture blind because you see so many beautiful objects. But this one uh, was like a sucker punch, and uh, it's stuck with me for many years since. Do you remember when you first saw it? I think it was probably about 10 years ago on a trip to the Prado. I think I must have been doing some filming for the BBC. And of course, you know, uh, everyone wants to go and congregate around Las Meninas and that sort of thing. And this was hanging in, a, uh, you know, not a deserted room, but it's one of the smaller rooms. And one of the most extraordinary things about the painting is that it's painted in oil on panel. Oh. And as a result, none of the pigments uh, have faded with with the, the tendencies that they often do on canvas. And its luminosity is really uh, quite intense. And then uh, you combine all that, and the fact that it's in good condition, combine all that with the subject matter, and it's uh, it's a real knockout. So tell me about the subject matter then. Who is Martin Rickart? Martin Rickart was an artist. Uh, and Van Dyck seems to have been very keen on depicting his fellow artists. Uh, a great number of sitters in his iconography series of engravings were fellow painters. And it's almost like Van Dyck was trying to be a, a shop steward to sort of elevate the status and fame of his fellow artists and, of course, his own. Martin Rickart uh, painted rather sort of small scale by that point in the early 1640s, 1630s, slightly old-fashioned little pictures of Arcadian scenes and uh, people going about their daily lives somewhat in the manner of of the Bruegels. Um, But he was known for being uh, the artist with one arm, and that's how he's formally recorded, in fact, in Antwerp, in the the Guild of St. Luke, um, the Schilde mit innen erm. And it's very touching how Van Dyck has depicted him here because he's sat staring in front of you it's a full frontal image and it's very obvious that he's only got one arm and although van dyke doesn't focus on the missing arm you can tell he's only got one arm and that's what gives this picture a part of its its power i think you also spoke about its luminosity and that you know the the colors in this work are just spellbinding aren't they yeah he's he's wearing what's thought to be a sort of eastern european uh, court dress. He's he's got a bright red uh, tunic on, and over that is a, is a beautiful fur cape with a sort of dark blue colour. And he's also got a um, what looks a bit like a Santa hat, but in blue on. <laughs> but the red and the light falling on his face against the dark background, it just makes him stand out so uh, so much more than your average portrait from that period, where people are often interested. In presenting themselves in a in a flamboyant and expensive, um, sh- you know, blingy background, uh, but here everything is that it's all about the light falling on 
Rickart's face and his one good hand. Um, now, and the red, the red cloak helps you, helps your eye go into that aspect of the picture. And what's fascinating about Van Dyke's use of light here, I mean, it's, it's Caravan-esque essentially, um, is that the light falls on Rickart's one hand. And Van Dyke was really, really good at painting hands. In fact, uh, he gives rise to one of uh, the very few genuine art historical jokes. Um, he was once asked why he um, spent so much time uh, depicting his sitter's hands so beautifully. And he said, oh, well, the hands pay the bill. And so that that was very important <laughs> to him. But in this picture, Rickard's hand is, it's it's staggeringly well painted, but it, it's gripping the end of the chair. It's it's not a relaxed hand. And I think there's as much personality in the hand, the hand that he painted with, as there is in the face. It's really extraordinary. But what about what about that face? Because it's to me one of the great things about this this picture is it it seems to to convey the emotional life of the sitter so powerfully those those eyes are so um there's there's a certain wisdom in them but there's also a certain certain melancholy in them wouldn't you say uh, i think that's you're absolutely right it's melancholic and i think that's one of the reasons i love it i mean i'm one of those people who who loves sad music it sort of cheers me up in a way um and i think when you look at this picture of of martin rickard First of all, his eyes, the, the the basic structure of his eyes are sort of rather sad in themselves. He looks a little bit like, a, you know, a, a Labrador puppy who's just been scolded. But then, and you can see this on the Prado website, when you zoom into the eyes, uh, and this only works because the painting is in such good condition, you can see the moistness in them. And you can see, actually, that he is welling up. And when you combine that with... The, the overall sadness in his face and his mouth, the one arm gripping the chair, the very sparse lighting, and the fact that you know this man was, uh, we know he was ill at the time it was painted, and he died at the end of 1631, and we think the painting was painted in about 1631. The painting just, it's almost overwhelming. And one of the reasons I, uh, that, you know, one of the reasons I think it's appropriate for this potentially overwhelming moment in our in our lives is it it is actually a a picture about triumph over adversity uh, who would have thought that in flanders in the early 17th century a man with such uh, disability could become um a talented and well-known artist and i think that is what van dyck is celebrating its position in the Prado seems to me especially significant because of, because it 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 evokes another great portraitistician, and it seems to me that Van Dyck's work in the company of Titian seems utterly appropriate. Yes, Van Dyck was it's fair to say obsessed with Titian, and uh, obviously the the blueness and the redness of this portrait is very Titian-esque, but also sometimes if you look at um, a Van Dyck portrait, particularly from his late Italian period and his early, what we call second Antwerp period, which is when this painting of Martin Ricard was done, uh, they are often indistinguishable from from a, a, a Titian. If you see, for example, uh, there's a Titian in the Frick collection, which looks for all the world sometimes like a Van Dyck and vice versa. So, 
Uh, we know from Van Dyke's Italian sketchbooks that he went round uh, copying every Titian he could get his hand, his eyes on. Uh, and that's certainly, you're right, uh, has echoes in this portrait. Bendor, thanks for sharing your love of this painting with us. And I hope people go in their droves now to the Prado's website and to our website to look at this amazing picture. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now, the coronavirus began in China, of course, and the first of our journalists to feel the effects of the restrictions prompted by the pandemic was Lisa Movius, our China correspondent, who's based in Shanghai. Amid the awful developments in the rest of the world, some positive news has begun to emerge from China, and on Thursday the 19th of March, China reported no new local infections for the first time since the coronavirus crisis began three months ago. Lisa Movius joins me on the line now to discuss her experience. So, Lisa, the first question has to be, how are you? I am doing perfectly fine. Shanghai has been very quiet and there haven't been that many cases, especially given the huge population in the city. There have been a little over 350 um, total cases in Shanghai, and this is a city with 24 million people. So it's been pretty spread out and not particularly intense. However, it has been under what we call lockdown for seven weeks. So things have been very quiet and a little bit boring, but, you know, not exactly life-threatening. So can you tell me a bit about what, what that means, lockdown? Are you, you know, to what extent are you prohibited from leaving your home, all that kind of thing? So a lockdown is different from a quarantine. A quarantine means everything is completely closed. People are very much restricted in being able to interact at all. People are not allowed to come and go from their cities or their um, compounds or even from their houses. Um, And that's kind of what happened in Wuhan and a few other provinces or cities that were very, very hard hit. In Shanghai and most of China, we had a lockdown, which is similar to what they're doing now in the U.S. So a lockdown just means that most things are closed except for essential services like groceries and food delivery um, and, you know, hospitals and so on. And people are highly, highly encouraged to not go out unless absolutely necessary. However, that means that the streets are very empty. So if you want to go out for a walk or a run or a bike ride or to, you know, have a beer in the park it's pretty pretty safe because no one's around how did that manifest itself in terms of the art community so first off did museums shut immediately were they told to shut um you know how how did your life change as a result of uh, your working life change as a result of, of of the virus Mm-hmm. Well, for the museums, they shut almost immediately as things started to, as it started to become apparent of how bad the situation was in Wuhan and increasingly in other parts of the country. So in China, we have the Lunar New Year, which this year fell on the 24th and 25th of January. And that was the same time as things were um, becoming evident of how bad it was. So a lot of institutions were closing anyways, and so they just were told to extend their holiday hours for another week and then for another week, and then for another week. So by and large, and museums also usually close, uh, sorry, galleries also usually close over Chinese New Year. So, you know, everyone was already in vacation mode, and it just they extended those closures for a few more weeks. I mean, one thing that I'm sure many of our listeners won't know is to what extent is there a sort of joined up series of, of art communities in China? To what extent are they very independent? How much communication is there among the different communities in, in, in China? 
I would say the communities in city to city in China, especially in mainland China, is very uh, tight knit. There's maybe, you know, the of the leading museum, twenty or thirty museums, and maybe forty to fifty galleries. Things have grown slowly enough that people still mostly know each other and are in touch and are on a number of you know WeChat group chats and other social media. So I feel like the conversation about what's going on and what people are doing has been pretty much nonstop, even if we couldn't actually meet in person. And have you got any sense of artists themselves and how artists have responded to this issue? Are people doing creative things whilst on lockdown or whilst whilst the restrictions are in place? Well, in theory, lockdown, spending all this time in your home or in your studio can be very productive. But in reality, because everything becomes so unstructured, um, our sense of time becomes what could be best described as whimsical. It's not necessarily easy to focus when there's so much uncertainty and fear going on. And then you don't actually have any, you know, pressing engagements to have to plan around. I think what has happened with artists that I've talked to, as well as the rest of us, is that it's become a very um, reflective time hanging out with your family or with your pets or with your friends and, you know, thinking a lot about what you're doing and where you're going. So I think that will maybe get reflected into a more thoughtful art out of Asia or all of the world at the rate things are going in the future. But we're probably also going to see a lot of bad paintings of masks, too. <laughs> Can you tell us something about, I mean, like in, in, in the UK and the US already, there's been a lot of activity among the museums which have just recently closed, clearly wanting to communicate with their audiences, wanting to do lots of stuff online. Has that been the case in China? Yes, definitely. Everyone immediately started thinking about what they could do online, whether they're a gallery or a museum or even artists and curators have been dabbling with online spaces. But I would say a lot of what has happened has been reinventing the web. The don't necessarily know how to expand with technology because it's not something that has been very pressing previously. So we've seen here in the mainland China, uh, today is the last day of this um, Collect Plus Art Week, uh, which is actually two weeks since early, uh, since uh, March 5th run by this online platform, Zai, um, to put up profiles of different gallery directors and then certain art, works of art set for sale and um, in the hopes that you know it'll draw in new collectors and new eyeballs and actually make some sales. Uh, what I'm hearing from the galleries is that the sales were not terribly strong from that, uh, but it still is better than nothing as a way to get people to interact um, uh, just this week in Hong Kong, some um, a couple different um, galleries and auction houses and PR companies are launching an art power platform, uh, which is hoping to do online exhibitions and promotions of different projects and talks and so on. I know a couple galleries that are doing like virtual studio tours or do, trying to do their own podcasts or doing just interviews with um, artists. Um, so all these kinds of things, but, um, and even, even some artists, some galleries have tried to, um, set up like games and interactive projects and platforms for their projects. Um, but it is a little bit of a hodgepodge and I can't say there's anything that's been terribly new. I think what's been shown from the past two months is that we really need to knock our heads together and start thinking of new models for what to do when we can't actually meet face to face. 
Um, can you tell us something about about the presentation of the virus in the media? Because as Europe becomes the epicenter of the virus, it's very clear that there is a there is very widespread reporting in very rich detail and. Uh, a lot of it conflicting. There are lots of different opinions about the right ways to go, etc. Has there been a similar debate in the Chinese media? To what extent do you feel like there's been a kind of a real intention to inform the Chinese public? Uh, when it comes to the mainstream Chinese media, debate is not something that's hugely encouraged. The you know the information is presented, and everyone pretty much toes the the literal party line and of course initially it was that everything was fine then that everything wasn't fine then that everything was really 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 not fine please stay home now um but within the parameters of what you can report and what you can say there has been a lot of information out there and people have been very proactively using social media and using their vpns to find and spread information of course that means there's a lot of misinformation and conspiracy theories and um but china has no monopoly on that either one thing that did happen in the early weeks, especially um, when people were very critical of what was happening in Wuhan for good reason and for the early cover-up of the virus, um, was that a lot of people in the art world had their WeChat accounts suspended. Uh, so quite a lot of people were just kicked off the platform entirely and had to get new phone numbers and reapply. So this was a there was a real new real crackdown on what could be said over social media midway through the um, lockdown. Right. Now, over the last week or so, China has been the sort of source of more positive news amongst a deluge of very bad news here in the West. I was wondering if you might tell us what the status is now. So, for instance, you, both your personal status and the status in, in the art world, you know, are museums open? Can you can you see art? Mm. Well, as of today, we are not officially required to wear masks outside anymore though we're still supposed to wear them with, when we're in public places indoors. So that's a nice change. Um, museums in Shanghai, as of last week, started reopening, but just the state museums, because, of course, state museums can follow stricter rules on you know, how to go in and how to register and keeping the numbers down compared to private museums. Um, only a few galleries have reopened, but some of the uh, galleries in M50, which is the Mogan Chanlu uh, gallery cluster, have actually been open quietly for almost a month now. Um, everyone else is still waiting for their um, marching orders on how they can apply. It really varies based on who their landlord is or who their compound is, whether they're allowed to have people in. Right, but you've been to an art event today, right? You've been actually to a museum today. Mm -hmm. Today was not an event per se. It's that the Power Station of Art, which is Shanghai's state-owned um, contemporary art museum, has now opened to public since March 13th. And so I registered a day in advance with you know, giving my passport number and personal information. And upon showing up, I had to show that registration. I had to show my health QR code, most, most updated as of today, and had to have my temperature taken. And then I had to wear a mask inside. So can you tell me about that experience of actually going there then because it must have been after after a long time of not doing this sort of thing was it was it was it eerie was it strange was it was it comforting 
Well, the power station of art in Shanghai is a huge place anyways, so you always get overwhelmed by the size and the emptiness even when it's packed with people. When there's maybe two or three other people in an exhibition, if that many, it is, you know, it's kind of like the VVIP tour. You get to really enjoy things and see things close up and spend as much time as you want to without getting jostled. So it's, it's actually a, quite a nice time, and this is a good time to go to museums or galleries here in Shanghai. Um, now, on a sort of less positive front, overnight today, we're talking on Wednesday, we found out that um, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal have been banned effect- effectively from China. Um, what's your view on this? How's this being reported there, for instance? Well, I haven't read the Chinese media, but I have seen Chinese friends' reactions to it um, taken from international media, and everyone's quite upset about, obviously, this is a big blow against uh, freedom of speech and responsible journalism in China. To clarify, the publications are not banned. All of these publications, you can't access them in China in the first place without a VPN, but they've had operations here. Um, the details of what's happening with their reporters is still not clear, but the initial reports say that all of their American citizen journalists are going to be kicked out. Uh, I don't know what that's going to mean for their correspondents of other nationalities. For example, the Washington Post bureau chief is, I think, a New Zealander. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to stay or what exactly, how exactly this is going to play out. But it is the, the largest mass expulsion of journalists that's ever happened in modern Chinese history. So you say it's the largest since 1949, but has there been a recent history of similar expulsions or, or anything um, anything that resembles this? So last month, I think it was, three correspondents from the Wall Street Journal were uh, removed because of a editorial that the publication ran that had nothing to do with any of those correspondents. That it was a very unfortunate title that it called China the sick man of Asia or the sick man of the world, and that references a very unfortunate history of when that was a more of a racist slur against China. So understandably, the government was angry. Everyone was angry with the Wall Street Journal over that editorial. However, punishing three reporters over something that had nothing to do with them was not a very appropriate reaction. And this time the expulsions are because, um, I'm not sure exactly when, um, but America recent, the American government recently limited the number of reporters from several Chinese state media that could operate in China and labeled them as agents of the state, so probably um, insinuating that they are actually spies rather than really journalists. What's missing in um, this response is that the Chinese journalists in the U.S. are, of course, working for state papers, whereas all of the papers affected in China are private papers. So it is quite an imbalanced response, definitely. Last question. In, in the U.K. media, there's been a lot of talk about different waves of the virus and that even if it's beaten in the short term, it may return uh, later and 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 perhaps even more devastatingly. Has there been anything like that in the Chinese media? Is there any preparation for what might be another wave of the virus, given that it seems at the moment to be contained? I think the the sentiment that there's going to be at least another, if not more, waves of the virus hitting all of us is a universal sentiment worldwide. Here, though, the focus is more on containing imported cases. So right now, there's a lot of people, and including a lot of people in the art world, both Chinese nationals and foreigners who were based in China, who 
were abroad for Chinese New Year and just stayed abroad. So people are coming back in droves, like all of the existing flights are just packed with people now. Um, so each city has different rules in terms of quarantine. Um, China has not banned anyone, despite some reports. Everyone is allowed to come back, but they will be forced to quarantine either at home or in a facility or in a hotel, depending on their exposure and which country they come to. So in Shanghai, there's 16 countries currently that are considered hotspots, including the U.S., and anyone coming from there has to be subject to an extra strict quarantine. A friend of mine who works at a museum is in the line for that right now, waiting to get tested. And she keeps joking about how the all the Shanghainese are complaining that the foreigners are getting the exact same treatment as the local Shanghainese because everyone is being subject to the same rules. Since, of course, the virus doesn't care where you come from. Indeed, it doesn't. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and, and stay well. Yes, thank you. You too. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Anna, to Bendel and to Lisa. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.